Hi, my name is John Kim, and I'm a therapist who went through his own rebirth. I share my feelings and revelations. I believe in casual or clinical, and with you instead of at you. I come unrehearsed on purpose because self-help doesn't have to be so complicated. So I'm super stoked about today's guest, John. No one says stoked anymore. It is not 1994. Anyway... She's super rad. Her name is Dr. Nicole LaPera, and I believe she was the first on Instagram to take dense concepts and put them into little squares. And I remember first following her and seeing her content and just like having anxiety thinking, what is this? I've never seen this before. <laughs> what is going on? So much information in these little squares. And I realized, wow, there's actually a gift to this. Um, not only that, it's not just about her Instagram where she has like 1.2 million followers, but it's also about her story. I love that she is transparent. Um, I love that she shares her own journey with anxiety and, um, you know, she's, she's one of the, the, uh, wellness influencers on Instagram that believes in showing herself and, I feel a kinship to that um, because that's kind of what I started doing 10 years ago. And I really believe there's a, a power in our stories. So I really respect her for sharing her stories and, of course, um, everything that she is doing online to create a dialogue and help people. You could tell from her feed uh, she's really making it about the community. Um, and I think uh, she's amazing. So here is. Dr. Nicole LaPera. Okay, Nicole LaPera, thank you for being on my show. Of course, John. Thank you so, so much for having me. I'm, I, it, I'm very excited to chat with you today. Me too. I have so much to talk about, but I already fucked up because I didn't say doctor. And if I was a doctor, I would be furious if no one called me a doctor. If they just called me John Kim and not Dr. John Kim, I would be pissed. So uh, Dr. Nicole LaPera. Excuse me. Um, no, no worries at all. I am not that connected to that title. So not a problem on my end. Nicole works just fine. <laughs> so um, I got to say, I think you were the first person um, to actually say, fuck pictures on Instagram and take these really complicated concepts and put them into these like squares. And I think that's, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think that's why you have uh, kind of exploded. Do you think? Yeah. I mean, I think that the concepts are part of it. Honestly, I don't take the full credit for it. I think it's a testament to the collective and what they're ready to hear in terms of, of these concepts for sure. So, you know, I think it's a little bit of a lot of things, but yeah, I agree. I get from a lot of people that the information I'm presenting, I, I'm going to be the first to attest. It's not new. This has been talked well, about, yeah, but right, I think right. those memes, right, are the way it's being talked about now in much more of an understandable and practical way. So hearing that that's the case, I'm very, I'm elated because that's been my goal all along. Yeah. And I mean, what a, what a, what a goal you accomplished. I mean, you're like at what a million plus followers and I believe that you've only been do doing this for about a year. Incredible. Yeah, it was last July um, I took to online and it just exploded. Like I said, I think it's a testament to 
where the collective is and wanting to hear this and really speaking some universal human truth that we can all relate to regardless of what our title is in life. Yes, and I love that Instagram is now about more than just photographs because it started off as a, a very photography-heavy platform and now it's you know videos and words and, 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 uh, and all of this. Yeah, I think it's incredible. It, it, and I love how people are creatively using it to do disseminate all, all different types of, of information. And for me, it's I, I laugh, I'm smiling if you were to see me when you talked about the memes, because I'm gonna tell you something, John, those memes were the bane of my existence. When I first went on Instagram, it would take me hours at a time to conceptualize and think and then create them. But I've fallen into a rhythm. But yeah, I think Instagram is an incredible tool to touch many people in many different ways and to really communicate incredible content outside of just pretty pictures, which I, I think are amazing. And I do not have that talent, but I think it's just so versatile. Yeah. And I'm not a pictures person either, either, which is, um, you know, made this more exciting for me. Um, but I think, you know, when you just said that it takes you hours to, uh, take these concepts and, and put them into the, the, the bite, bite size, quote unquote, snackable, um, things that we see on your feed, I think there's a gift to that because many can't do that. I mean, many cannot take a dense concept and, and I know it takes you a long time because you, I'm sure you use different tools to do it, but, um, to pick the sentences or the words or to, to organize it in a way where, you know, uh, within about, you know, 15 seconds, you start to get the concept that that's a gift. I think. I appreciate, I appreciate you saying that. And I think that's a gift I was bestowed quite naturally to me. And I obviously school is the first system where I started to realize that my mind worked in a way that was very valuable for the schooling environment where there was grades. But now that I'm out of school and very much self teaching and self learning in a new way, which was a challenge to shift from the more structured school model that I think I innately desired. But I think my brain, I saw, I'm starting to realize that my brain does that quite naturally. It can take a big concept into understand. And that's, I think, how I've learned myself, understanding the concepts myself. And then I'm just regurgitating the way I learned the concept in a way that I think resonates. Right. And I love that you're doing this because you're giving the world, uh, bringing, you know, uh, therapy and psychology down to street level, the things that you and I learned in classrooms. Now, um, we are teaching, you know, anyone who wants to, uh, are willing to listen. So thank you for doing that. I think, I think that's amazing work. And I, I always, I, I think your feed is like a Snickers bar. It's just packed, packed mm -hmm. with uh, all the stuff. Um, let's put a bookmark there. And I wanted to ask you, what made you want to become a psychologist? So I'm one of those people that I think intuition, intuitively I was, and I might've taken a, a different point of entry that you normally hear. I was very interested in the mind and in how, what made people. And of course, when I was very young, you would hear me talk about my friends and the invites or lack thereof. I was very interested in why people were different than me. Um, and in understanding people. And I say the different is because I think a lot of times I'll hear from colleagues, oh, I really, not that I don't want to help people. I, I love empowering people. But I think the fascination with the mind always had me walking the journey to become, you know, the doctor of the mind. And I think that's what really translates now into the the different way that I'm I'm working with the mind. But as long as I can remember, it was, John, I was gonna, I'm going to be a psychologist. I took the one psychology class in high school. I was a declared major upon arrival at at Cornell or I went to undergrad. So I'm just one of those people that that's what I was doing. And I think it's because of 
my fascination with the power of the mind in particular. Did you know what you wanted to do with psychology? Like, did you yeah, want a private so, practice? What did you want to do? With yeah, that? it was, I, I liked the idea. So the reason when I went to school, I had the option of PhD or PsyD at the time. Outside of that, there was no other way to practice. And for, um, for people who don't know, PhD is more research-based, right? And right, yeah. So that that's what I'm getting at. So I knew I wanted, practice was always what I was doing, but I liked the idea of having the option to do research down the line. Or So I just wanted to keep all of the doors open, which is why I decided on the PhD as opposed to the society because um, I was interested in it all but the private practice was was definitely going to be what I did it was more of a question will I teach or will I do research on the side the only reason I wouldn't uh, spend the two hundred thousand dollars on a side is because no one knows what a side is, and if I'm gonna get if I'm gonna get a PhD, I want people to you know. know. <laughs> there is a all ego, a lore ego thing that I'm not gonna lie, you know, because the side is much newer. I'm mm -hmm. like, people don't know what that is, you right? Know, right. Thing, um, but mainly, I just wanted to arm myself with if I was spending or when I spent $200,000 and seven plus eight years, I wanted to make sure that any goddamn door was open that I wanted to be open in terms of what I would do later, because that was a whole hell of a long commitment in many ways. So did you end up doing a full practice or is that something that you kind of started and then you do it, started doing? Other, yeah. Other so that's exactly what I did when I got to the point in my training where I was at um, pre-doc. So I had to start to clock just straight hours of supervised work. I moved out of New York City where I was living, uh, mainly because I just could not imagine myself living in, in a city like New York forever. So I moved to Philly. It's it's cousin down the road, quite literally. And I started to, I worked at, and I did my remaining training at a psychoanalytic institute. And I then very shortly after, once I got the official license that allowed me to hang the shingle, I had opened up a practice that was very much mindfulness-based. And I had a full-time practice when I went through my own health crisis, which really propelled me into working holistically that over time I gradually closed down and shifted gears into working as I am now. What was your health crisis? So, so I, just on a personal note, because this wasn't something new at the time, but I'm someone who, as long as I can remember, has suffered from anxiety. It was the little girl hiding, afraid of the world. You know, my twenties were one panic attack after another. So my anxiety started to, to come back up. It was always a conversation with me that I thought I would always have of management. So anxiety never went away for me, but my anxiety started to peak again. And I started to get some really scary health symptoms. Uh, I started to faint. I had never been a person who had fainted before. I fainted multiple times. I started to forget clients' names, clients that I were seeing religiously, weekly, week after week. I forgot sentences, mid-sentence. So Having anxiety of the particular health-related variety, I got really, really scared at that point, John, and I thought something for sure was physically wrong with me, and I took, I took to the vast world of the internet, quite honestly, to do a little bit of self-diagnosis, and in that journey, I was met with just incredible amounts of information that I hadn't learned in school prior, which propelled me to make a lot of changes, holistic-based changes in my life. Wow. So is it is it uh, is it much better now after you've come out of that that tunnel? Oh, I mean, so what I did is, yeah, I, I changed all my lifestyle choices. I changed how I ate. I changed how I slept. I balanced my nervous system, knowing that realizing I was living a life in fight or flight uh, physically, all of my symptoms 
I have I've had energy. I mean, I didn't I didn't realize that humans could actually have energy throughout a whole day and not need that. I mean, part of it too. I'm joking when I say this, but some of the symptoms that I was I come to realize, put it this way, some of the symptoms that I had been experiencing my whole life, the brain fog, the lack of energy, the lack of motivation, sometimes the underlying buzz of agitation, anxiety. I've now looking back on them, understand that they were that's. They, that's not normal, but it feels normal because everyone around me, especially as I neared my 30s and entered my 30s, everyone else was talking the same symptoms. I'm stressed. I'm exhausted. I can't get up. I need right. So I think part of it is we some of us don't realize how how health feels because we've never felt it. So not only did all of my health symptoms go away and I feel better than I think I've ever felt in terms of my physical body my anxiety went away. And that's what really propelled me to have a, a hard, honest conversation with myself and with the future of the way that I worked. Because I think like many of us were taught, there's limits, there's no healing from some of these things. You have that genetic chip and there's a range of, you know, variation that, but you're never going to get better. And I, I thought I was never going to get better in terms of my anxiety. And my anxiety got better. And then I knew that this is a new, this is something important here that I wanted to talk about. Yeah. So first I want to, um, just applaud you and thank you for being transparent. One of the things that I did 10 years ago was I pulled the curtain back, uh, while I was going through a divorce and I blogged about, um, being in pain and, and, and uh, going through a broken heart. And what that did was that humanized myself as a therapist. And I think it's so important, especially today, uh, for therapists to, to no longer be a cardboard cutout uh, to show yourself. And I think uh, especially with uh, social media and millennials, they're more interested uh, in who you are than the, the letters after your name. So, um, yeah, so I just want to thank you for sharing your story. I think that's important. I appreciate you saying that, John. I, I do. I agree. I think, though, part of the field is at least the field that I was trained in. We are taught in a lot of ways directly, right? Not to be a human in the, in the room with them. And I can understand theoretically why those concepts develop, but I agree with you. I think that people want a human therapist. And I think that's why I resonate. I think people like yourself that are pulling the curtain back. I have other colleagues that are speaking very honestly. You know, there's a lot of us online now showing our humanity. And I couldn't agree more with you. People want to work with another human. And I think, again, a testament to my growth is that I, I am a universal human. I am struggling in the same ways, or I have struggled in the same ways that most of us do. So when you speak to the collective, even if you do have letters after your name, or you're on the one side of the couch and they're on the other, knowing that you're a human and being able to relate can be incredibly healing for both of us, for me too. I have gotten so much healing, John, when I would go and share my stories and my struggles that I thought I was alone in. And I have messages creeping in from around the world at this point saying, oh, I feel that way too, or this is how it was for me. I I can heal hearing that as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, and I think that's what's exciting about today is we can, even though we don't, you know, we live in uh, uh, different cities and, and we kind of just know each other through our feeds, we can still hold hands. We can still, um, you know, uh, present ourselves in a way, uh, especially, you know, since we're both uh, in the space of psychology and, and, and helping other people, um, present ourselves in a way where we can create some kind of movement um, it, by showing ourselves, by humanizing ourselves, by coming with people instead of at people. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I, I am so 
when, when I decide it, you know, at, at the end of my journey or not when I was feeling better enough that I decided I want to start talking about this, if I'm fully transparent and honest, John, I was really scared in particular. I was a little concerned about sharing, obviously, this with the masses, the collective, what are they think, going to think I'm talking about, but particularly I was fearful about what my peers were going to think. Here I am talking about self-healing and these holistic methods that I almost was positive they had not heard about before. Who am I to be disrupting the field in this way? And I honestly was nervous of the reception that I would get. And it's been nothing but incredibly positive. Yeah. And I can imagine, you know, as you were growing, uh, the more, the more, the scarier it was, you know, as you started going from, you know, whatever, 400,000 to half a million to 800,000. Um, it must have been more uh, terrifying for you to show yourself and share your story, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just the sheer scale of it. I can't even wrap my head. Or I would make a practice, if I'm honest, of sometimes Googling the population. Like, when I would see my number, I would Google it. And you could find anything on Google Images just to wrap my head around. Because you lose sight, or I at least can, it becomes a number, you know? So Part of, I wasn't even doing that from a vein, like, look at the people listening. I was doing that from like a, holy shit, look at like actually who I'm talking to out there. And so it can be overwhelming on a personal note. One of my child wounds that I carry is not, is a desperate want to be seen and heard living in an environment where I did not feel fully seen and heard as me and a unique being and all of that. But so it's so interesting because my own individual journey of healing at this scale has been just that. While it's something I've always wanted, I want people to to listen to me and you know hear my ideas. It scares the shit out of me on the other side of it. So as that number grew, my own healing was involved. And there was many moments where I made a commitment to do a free meditation event and I show up on a beach and there's hundreds of people in front of me and my little girl wants to run off into that ocean and never come back, if I'm honest. But so it's it's definitely been part of my own healing journey in a really, really interesting and helpful, though not always welcomed at times ways. Are you an introvert or an extrovert? I'm pretty, I'm more on the introverted side of the spectrum. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So um, speaking of uh, childhood wounds and uh, stuff that kind of uh, positions us and, and creates imprints, um, I'm really fascinated by this idea of there's something always running underneath. And I know that um, when you were on uh, Lewis House's podcast, you were talking about uh, the consciousness being the first place to get unstuck. And I think... Um, this is, I mean, in almost every session I do, I always try to get to what's happening underneath. And, you know, part of this is just me as a screenwriter being trained to uh, listen for uh, what's under the words, right, the subtext, but also uh, through uh, just, you know, studying psychology and, and my uh, graduate program. Um, what do you think about that? You, what do you think about this, this whole idea of, I mean, what most of what we do is by, you know, the, these things, these uh, these things that are running underneath that we're, we're sometimes not aware of. Yeah, I, I, I think that is the story, John. I think when I say holistic, I was actually speaking with someone earlier today. I mean two, two components when I'm speaking the term holistic. I mean the reality, as far as I say it, that we are not just a mind. We are a mind, a body, and I believe a soul. So there's three parts of us that work in unity, in alignment or misalignment that cause 
symptoms that sit on the surface. So the work, what I also mean when I say holistic is exactly what you're attesting to the, the driving beneath the surface to understand the underlying imbalances, just to use a really general term and any or all of those areas, the physical body, the, the, the mental world, you know, stories and schemas and conditioning patterns and beliefs that we're carrying that no longer serve us, our relationship with our emotions and that soul being out of alignment or not connected to our intuition. And so I have always interestingly worked intuitively like you do always drilling down or urging the clients I was working with to drill down and understand what's driving it. And now um, that's a core component of what I mean when I say holistic is understanding what's driving it or else I find we're at risk of just putting the band-aids on. So if I put the band-aid on this one constellation of symptoms, it's going to leak out somewhere else until I understand what's driving it and resolve it at that level. It will never fully go away. Well, if you're not seeing a therapist, do you think there's a – how would you – so if, if someone is not in therapy and they're not in a, any kind of space to process this stuff, um, is it possible to become aware of what's happening underneath on your own? I believe yes, 100%. Yeah. I think therapists – What's the process? Yeah. I mean, so what I call a therapist is what I call anyone else. That's not us. They can be an objective observer and incredible support. Obviously we, you know, we come with our own training and our own knowledge and tools and emotional regulation that can be invaluable. So I'm never dissuading people from finding that level of support, whether it's in a best friend or a partner or a therapist. I think it's a necessary part of the journey for many of us. However, I think that there are tools that even if you don't have access to a therapist or are not choosing to see a therapist at the time, that can be an invaluable part of change. So I simplify, if we want to talk in concepts, I like to do that in two very simple concepts. As far as I say it, we're in the business of change, right? People want to change. Life as I know it isn't working and I want to see one or many things be different. As far as I say it, John, there's two steps to creating a future that's different. The first step is consciousness. So you hear me go on and on and on about learning how to observe ourselves, learning how to come to the, our own experience, our own lived experience of the reality that we are as humans, incredibly patterned creatures from our behavioral habits to the thoughts that we think, to the emotions that those thoughts result in, in our physical bodies, physiological and hormonal changes were patterned. So becoming conscious allows us to begin to observe what those patterns might be, the ones that are no longer serving us, being the ones that we can take then the next step of change, which is choice. Beginning to now make new choices in those moments or in those areas to create a future that's different. Because the reality of it is, John, if we're not conscious, we're living in autopilot 95% of the time. And what's going to be running just to expand the computer analogy that we all love because it's the most understandable is we're going to be running on those older programs. And that's why I hear the word stuck. I hear the word, no amount of insight can create change because we have to start to show up differently somewhere yeah. on our journey. Yeah. And I always tell people that, um, you know, I get a lot of relationship clients, uh, dealing with dating and, and relationships and this obviously uh, happens in relationships, and if you are not conscious, you're basically loving with your past. You're loving in your past instead of uh, creating new love experience in, in, in the here and now. Um, so, so the question, I think, is how do you get conscious? How do you, you bring that to it. the surface? Yeah, yeah, practice it. So, I mean, I'm, I talk about the tool of meditation 
because I think when we hit pause and we just stop and we go inward, that can help stillness can be, can help be our first access point of consciousness. Because once the day is coming at us from, you know, right, left and everywhere here, there and everywhere, we're back. We're just so much more likely to shift into that autopilot. So building the moment of stop or stillness or meditation can allow us to begin to access that consciousness. That does not mean though, that that's enough. We then have to learn and practice and teach ourselves. And the, 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 I'm always acknowledging the, the thing that's going to help we're going to harness because it's incredibly effortful and it is a practice and it does take patience, but our brain is what we call neuroplastic, which means it can change. So as effortful as this practice is at the beginning, you do start to hit a stride because our ultimate goal is to expand that consciousness beyond the meditation cushion. Cause I actually find this to be a limitation. A lot of people maybe have a beautiful meditation habit. Maybe they do it every day, but when they go out into their daily life, they're swept up back into that autopilot. So our goal ultimately is to cultivate that consciousness throughout the day where it's much harder, which is why I'm always offering them, you know, sitting in stillness can be a start point, but we definitely want to expand that practice because during the day are where those choices live that we want to start making new ones around. So when you say choices, because that's very um, broad, what, what, what do you mean by choices? You mean from everything um, um, from how we think to our behavior? Yeah. I mean, I, I, everything uh, exactly. And I use this illustration. So I call it kind of pre-conscious and post-conscious life. So before we become aware, what we very much live the experience of is, and this is very simplified, right? Thing happens out there. I feel some kind of way. I do the same kind of thing I always do when I feel that kind of way. What I come to realize is actually the case when I become aware, because one of the things I'm becoming aware of is my internal world or my thoughts, right? So my thoughts are there all day long. So what I come, so living in version A, pre-conscious state, we do feel very reactionary. We do feel a victim to what's happening in the world because we are, because that thing that makes me feel this kind of way, I have no choice but to react in the same way I always react. When I become conscious, what I come to the awareness of is what really is the case. Thing happens out there. I've run it through a filter. I've interpreted it to mean something typically based in my past experiences. Like you're saying with the partnership, I'm replaying some version of my past, overlaying it on this current experience. And then that's what's resulting in me feeling that kind of way and doing that kind of thing. So what I mean when I say choice while it's incredibly uncomfortable, I think for a lot of us to realize that we are participating or our past is participating in some way, it sets us up to make a new choice. So the choice being thing happens out there that I maybe cannot control. You know, someone else did it around me, whomever the world happens. I can begin to create choice in how I interpret it, making room for a new interpretation that might allow me to then have a new emotion and to cope with that emotion in a new way. Um, I read this the other day, and I'm paraphrasing, but it's um, it's not what happened, but it's our uh, perspective of what, what happened. So we don't really see the truth of the event. We see the event through our distorted lens, and that's what creates our knee-jerk reactions and anxiety and throwing chairs or, or all the stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I love that. And I think that's so incredible. And I, I do acknowledge, you know, and I'm going to say this to all the listeners now, 
it's uncomfortable as hell to put ourselves as part of the equation. And I always prep when we're, when I'm talking about consciousness, when I was doing it with my individual clients or in the membership that I'm now a part of, right? I'm, I'm warning you, it's going to get uncomfortable first. It's incredibly uncomfortable, but the empowerment allows me to shift out of throwing chairs or screaming and yelling. Cause I know what sits on the other side of a reaction like that for a lot of us, a lot of shame and a lot of damage to our relationship with ourself and with others or with our world in general. How do you define self-care for you? Self-care for me is, is all of the ways that I've taught myself to show up for myself each day, because a lot of us, as far as I see it, were not modeled acts of self-care and self-care falls in many categories. Self-care to simplify can fall into terms of the body. How do I take care of my body? What are the lifestyle choices that I make or that I don't make in any given day? I had to teach myself new choices to make in those areas. Cause what I was modeled in my immediate environment growing up were not healthier, healthy ones that are in service of me and the adult that I want to be. Sometimes it's in the emotional realm. So for some of us, self-care is teaching ourselves, like I had to teach myself. I mean, this might sound strange coming from a psychologist, but I didn't have emotional competency. I have spent so much of my life. And I talk about this often dissociate it, protect it from my emotions distance. I call it my spaceship. I would go away and I was very good at appearing present and talking to people, but emotionally I was so distanced from feelings that were too overwhelming that when I, when I land at my spaceship, which was a practice and a commitment in and of itself to break that habit of dissociating and reconnect, I had no idea how to navigate my emotions. So some of us self-care is teaching ourselves emotional resilience or emotional competency. And why is self-care important? Meaning if you don't practice self-care, and I think, um, you know, especially men, uh, just because of stigma and, and locker rooms, uh, they think self-care is secondary or something that is, it's not something that uh, is important, right? Um, why, why is self-care important? Yeah, I definitely, I, I think about and talk often, uh, John, about the gender differences and the messages. I, I do, I do think it's very strong and I feel for men in many ways around the concept of self-care and emotions. I think some of it's cultural and societal large. I think it's really limited the messages that, that are given and internalized, but I mean, it's the cliche saying, right? We can't pour from an empty cup. And I come from a, a, a conditioned pattern of thinking that I was being selfless by showing up for everyone else first. So if I put someone else's needs before mine, whether it's in terms of my ener physical energy or emotional energy in any given day, I think I'm being selfless because they need me. So here I am showing up in the way they need me in that moment. But I really have come to realize that that is actually not selfless at all because what translates over time in the context of that relationship or possibly does, I become really resentful of this person because I'm taking care of everyone else first and no one's taking care of me. And I think that applies to anyone. I think mothers have this message a lot too, right? This idea that to be, to take care of yourself as a mother, especially when you, or even maybe fathers too, when you have little ones, right? That's selfish. You can't be in the equation. And again, I, I think that we need to redefine as a society this concept of self-care and, and it is not selfish. It actually allows us to show up more wholly in our relationships, whether it's with our kids, our partners, our family, our friends. 
Yeah, I think the word self-care has been stained. And the, what I like is uh, this concept, uh, you, you building a relationship with yourself. Yeah. So whatever that looks like to you, you're either going to connect to yourself or disconnect. And if you're disconnecting, then like you said, um, there's nothing in your cup. So it's going to be hard to, you know, just be a better human, better, you know, brother, sister, friend, father, mother, whatever. And I think that uh, most of us, uh, and we may practice self-care after a retreat or a seminar or maybe listening to a podcast, um, but a lot of people drop the ball. Uh, you know, uh, life happens and suddenly uh, self-care uh, goes out the window. And I think that if you're not pedaling the bike, uh, it it's, it's just stops moving. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I honestly want to expand that in every way, John, because I, I while workshops, right, uh, experiences like that, they can be incredibly pivotal in our change process. A lot of people ask me about plant medicine and ayahuasca. Yes, all of those things can create an incredible, impactful experience, but you'll always hear me attest to what's on the other side of that experience, which is the regular life that you're going to go back to in terms of your relationships, your day to day, your job that you either love or hate or somewhere in between. So that I love that analogy of pedaling the bike, whether it's self care or change in general, that's why I'm always a proponent of talking about the other end of that. Okay, great. Let's harness this impactful experience that you had and learn how to maintain then these changes in these areas over time. Because if you don't, before you know it, you're sliding right back down that slippery slope into that past version of you. You know what's interesting is the world understands very well that uh, you can't take one fitness class and, and, and assume you're going to lose 10 pounds, right? Like they know how much uh, physical and also nutrition it takes um, to lose weight or to transform your body. But when it comes to uh, self-awareness, when it comes to working on relationships – they don't, it doesn't apply for some reason. They don't understand that it is a lifestyle, that to be sustainable, um, you know, the, to actually re rewire yourself and, and all of that, that it's actually, you have to put as much work into it as, say, your fitness. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think that was a large limitation of the old way I was working. Even one incredibly insightful, impactful conversation for 50 minutes a week, John, there's a lot of other hours. So this isn't to say that people aren't then accessing those different choices out in the rest of their life, but that's necessary. So if you're only going to, whether it's at the gym or with your supportive friend or your therapist, if you're only, these are not magic elixirs. Like I always say, these are not things that you can do on an as needed basis. Change has to happen with what I call those small daily promises or, you know, the commitment to making those small steps each and every day. And I think it's, yeah, just like with, with the gym, I, I love that you brought that up. No, no change is sustained unless you make those choices consistently. I want to also um, kind of rid some misconceptions about therapy and speaking of genders. Um, I think men uh, go less to therapy than, than women. And uh, um, I'm actually doing a, a piece on NPR about it tomorrow. Uh, why is that? Uh, uh, but also, I think part of it, I think part of why men don't go is because, I mean, what, what do you think it is? What, what do you think it is? Or first, do you agree with me that, that men go less than women? Yeah. I mean, if I'm just looking over back, back into my old practice at the numbers, much more 
significant. I, I'm actually interested that you're saying that, John, because in the back of my mind, one way I could understand that is maybe a male would want a male therapist, someone who can maybe really resonate or really relate. But my instincts are telling me that I would agree that it's probably a smaller percentage of males than females. And again, some of it might be that messaging around feelings in general, around this concept of weakness, vulnerability and feelings as weakness that might be pre preventing men. Um, that's the first thing that I think has always come to mind. Again, those messaging, that belief system, that where a meaning is assigned, put it that way, to this concept of therapy that men more so desire to avoid. Well, I think we're also kind of um, programmed to uh, having to fix something. And if you go to therapy, it means that you are broken. And so you don't go to therapy. <laughs> Instead, yeah, possibly. Inst yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I, I wanted to also kind of explore um, what therapy is. I think a lot of people don't know what therapy is. I think, uh, you know, people think, oh, well, you just go into a room and you talk about your feelings. What are the advantage? What are the what, what is it that happens in a therapy room that you think uh, that people don't don't are not aware of yeah i think there's a lot that happens in a therapy room yes it is a place for some that's invaluable as possibly the only place where the focus is on the self and the, their feelings so the client who comes in might not have any other supportive place where it's about them for that 50 minutes right so this is the people pleaser the person who's always showing up for someone else incredible value to have a space that's for you. For some, it's the only safe space that they feel that they can be honest with their feelings around someone who won't judge them or where their feelings won't impact the relationship. Bringing me to the relationship. I think the relationship can be incredibly healing for some people, giving someone the experience of a different type of hopefully healthier relational dynamics that can help to undo. And it can be a practice place in that sense as well, where a client can learn some new tools around their self-awareness, their emotions, maybe the way, the part they play in relationships that then can translate outside. So I think there's many valuable pieces of it, depending on what's bringing you in that can translate. And for a lot of people do translate to them then beginning to show up differently outside of the therapy room. Yeah. And the other thing that's happening, uh, especially on my side, I mean, I, I don't have a full practice anymore on purpose just cause I'm, I'm, you know, doing other things like writing books and stuff, but, um, I get a lot of one-offs. I get a lot of people who just do one session and, they think that's that's it. That with within that fifty minutes, that I'm gonna you know change their life or or quote unquote fix them, uh, which is the same as thinking you know you go into the gym and you do twenty pushups and and then you're gonna you know tr suddenly transform your body. So what it's forced me to do partly is to put on more of a coaching hat. Um, and so although the relationship can be therapeutic, I'm now not doing therapy. I'm doing more coaching. So what do you think about that and the explosion of coaching? Oh, yeah, John, that was my evolution entirely. So once I started to, once I hung my holistic shingle, if you will, it wasn't much of a shingle. I mean, I very much was, I'm a consultant. I'm much more functioning like a coach. I would have consultation calls where very upfront, I would tell my clients that were interesting in working in this way that there would not be the frequency that they might expect with the therapist, that it wouldn't be weekly. It would maybe be once a month where it would be action-based and they would leave each session with the actionable items and obviously the understanding of why and how to use the tools, but it is those tools that will create change. I'm going to be transparently honest with you again. I still had the one-offs. I still had the people that would then show up for my session 
think maybe that I did have something magic that, and in what you said in the beginning, when you said kind of me sharing these tools in full transparency, I don't hide tools. There is never anything that I'm not talking about at scale or releasing in a PDF form for my email list that is different than the concepts that I'm talking about in my individual work. But in terms of the one-off, I do, I do still know, put it that way. I had the people that maybe would think, and obviously there's other reasons why people would only have one session outside of it. But my intuition is telling me that that still is the case that even in the coaching mentality, there are still, I think people who are hoping for the answer to be different or her just struggling then with the overall implementation of these tools outside of the session. Do you think also another layer is now that you have um, kind of become insta, insta famous, um, it's a lot of it is just, uh, getting a session just to kind of because they're a fan of yours, you know, just so they yeah, can talk to I'm you. Sure, yeah, I'm sure, possibly. You know, I'm sure there's a lot of driving forces for, I, I actually am no longer myself either doing individual sessions. I'm shifting into this membership mode in another project. But I, yeah, I think there was a lot of, you know, kind of points of attraction for, and this isn't to say that I didn't have a whole significant population as well of clients who showed up, who did the, you know, had the toolkit, did the work and created an incredible change. But I do think it's a testament to even a lot of us. I actually have a good friend here in Philly who I trained with psychoanalytically, who's shifting the hat and taking a more consultation coach based approach herself too. So I, I'm seeing a lot of people, I think, making the evolution that we're making and I, I attested to some of the reality that on some level, we all are starting to understand that one hour a week, even if it is, you know, even if you're going to still function in the therapy model, one hour at a time, this person owns that 11 a.m. on Tuesday slot, fine. But I think people are starting to evolve to maybe we're talking about homeworks or game plans for between Tuesday to Tuesday time. And I think that's a testament to a lot of us shifting the way we're working. Yeah. I mean, part of my story was scratching that itch after the lonely and frustrating journey of becoming a therapist uh, because of the board. And all the things that you're 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 uh, not allowed to do. I mean, I think even still today, you're not supposed to see people via uh, a webcam or FaceTime unless they're in your own own state. And every therapist is breaking that rule, right? Because of technology and social media. Um, I created my own coaching school. <laughs> I was like, I'm gonna I'm gonna help people, um, you know, work in a way that's honest to them. And 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 journey coaching was the birth of my frustrations of being so in in the box, you know. Um, and it's, we live in a really exciting time. I had a client the other day and, uh, again, she's a one-off, but she was saying that, yes, I do a session from you once in a while, but what I get from you, which you don't realize is all your content. Uh, and so you're almost in my ear every day. And then your, your podcast, uh, I also subscribe to your text. So from morning to night, I'm actually getting you. And then I had this revelation, like, I was like, holy shit. So like, what we're actually doing, how we're using social media itself is now becoming therapy. Yeah, absolutely. I've gotten that too. And I've gotten that with the clients that I was working in this coaching model. They're like, I, I have you between and they will bring in then content. Oh, three weeks ago, you posted this. Let's talk about this now. So it's a supplement. That's why I'm saying this is, there's going to be a place for all of us to work in whatever way feels most natural to us. And I, I just see this whole Instagram world and the use of it and the tools that a lot of us are talking about as an additional component of, to create incredible change for ourselves as a, as a, as a humanity. Yes. And there's also people who um, are therapists um, and psychologists and all of that who are 
against what we're doing. And for anyone in that world, um, you can't fight the way the world is going. You know, you can't fight what people are responding to. So if you are against it, I, I would just um, kind of look at why you're against it. What are your fears? Um, it, it probably has more to do with um, your insecurities and you being afraid than because I, I think if you if you continue to fight against the the, the growing, um, you're going to create your own island, and you're not going to be able to. And this is what's sad to me: you're not going to be able to help as many people as you can, or you could. Yeah, yeah, I I could not agree more. I think I actually again want to globalize that testament. It's it's the masculine and feminine energy. It's kind of like a theme through it. And in some ways, it's finding the push in the areas where the push, the masculine energy is helpful and then being able to step back in the flow. And I say that expands to life. You know, there's things that are happening societally, whether it's social media or generally where we each have that balance is a different point for each of us, but it really is helpful to find the areas where push is productive and the areas where flow is just as productive because I do agree with you. And I think I'm of abundance. There's, there's enough for everyone out there, you know? So if it is insecurity and if there is fear that, Oh, this type of work is taking from, from the type of work I want to do or am doing, I don't actually believe that at all. I believe that, like I said, there are still going to be people who want to work in different ways. And you'll part of the pact I made with myself, John is, I was sick of filtering my, my truth because I've done that in my personal life and I was trained to do that in my professional life. So when I came online, I promised my, and I, and I got really sick from misalignment in all of those areas. So I, I, I made a pact with myself as uncomfortable as this is for me, my healing evolution is going to be in speaking my truth. And within that pact, I, I settled in to the knowing, the deep knowing that, and my truth the people that are interested in my truth, my truth might not be for everyone. And I still don't believe it is for everyone, but the people that it is for will be attracted to my truth. So I say that to everyone, if you just speak your truth and can do so, even if when it's scary, you're going to find the people that are attracted to your version of the truth. Yes. I love that message. Um, it's actually the same conversation I had with myself when I was at the, the <laughs> yeah. darkest place. Um, and that's why my my very first post was called My Fucking Feelings. And it was kind of driving my stake in the ground, uh, telling myself that you're going to be transparent and you're not going to uh, exchange your truth for membership like you did in the past. Yeah, that's amazing. And I, people like you sharing that and people like me, I mean, it's just going to continue to. And like I said, coming on. All of the things I feared were not real in speaking my truth. A lot of it, well, I mean, yeah, I do still get the very interesting comments and I have a very interesting Reddit feed up there about me and the danger that I, you know, so you have to separate yourself and understand where those messages are coming from in a way that you are most comfortable. But speaking truth and living authentically, as far as I see, it will never steer me in the wrong direction. So I commend people like yourself because I know how hard it is to do that. But I know also know the freedom and the value on the other side of it. It is very hard, um, but if you swam so far that is, you just can't turn back, then it gets easier. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. don't give yourself a choice. That's <laughs> um, right. One last question from me before I get to a few questions from um, from your fans because I posted that uh, you're, I'm going to be interviewing you, and I got a bunch of questions. Okay, so the one qu the last question for me is: Are you a spiritual person, and if so, what does that look like for you? Yeah. So if you would have asked me, I'm, I'm happy you asked me this because if you would have asked me 
uh, probably a decade ago, John, I would have said no. I was very much, you know, I was raised in Catholicism, so I very much grouped it all into that camp, and I was not interested. Um, in the last decade of evolution, yes, I believe I'm a spiritual person. I believe I feel connected to the energetic universe and the collective as a whole. Spirituality and nature really always resonates with me. I, I love being in nature. I definitely can feel, I'm still fostering it and building the connection to all that is in many ways, but nature has always been my pathway into it. So when I ever define spirituality, you're going to hear some version of nature and being out kind of at one with it all as part of my version of spirituality. Um, I can totally relate. And for me, the same thing, you know, 10 years ago, uh, the word energy just meant, you know, battery life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh -huh. it, it didn't mean um, anything to do with the universe and the world and how we're collected. And so I've just been super thirsty for that. I think part of it is just, you know, getting older. I'm 46 now and um, I'm, I'm less interested uh, in what on what's on the surface. I'm more interested in what's happening that we can't see. So I've become a seeker in that way. So I'm always curious when I meet new people where they're at and what their uh, spiritual journey looks like. So thank you. All right. Um, here are some questions from fans. One is um, anxious versus avoidance dating each other. Any way to make it work and both people be happy? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think any, I think that relationships, while they're incredibly challenging, especially when we're talking about attachment style. So I will get, I am the lived experience of whoever asked that question, if you're listening, of I am the avoidant and my partner is the anxious um, based on our past experiences. And while you'll, when you ever, you hear me talk of our relationship, I will attest it definitely began in what I call a trauma bond, us reacting in our own patterns, seeking the comfort or the familiarity, not always of the partner that's best for us. But a whole lot of individual healing has happened in the shared space that is our couple, our partnership. Um, I say that very intentionally because I do feel that the person answering the question or anyone else who has a question about relationships and quote unquote making it work, as far as I see it at least, it is each individual's responsibility to do the work. Yes, there is the shared space and the triggers and especially when it's around the attachment styles that make that work challenging. But it's our job to show up evolving and doing the work and not looking to our partner to necessarily be or do different to make things different for us. So the short answer is I think any relationship can work, quote unquote, can evolve, can be a space of evolution if you have two partners that are showing up to do the work. Or if one of the partners isn't and the one partner is showing up and doing the work, a whole lot can shift and change with self-healing in a relationship. Yes. And, and, and I'll simplify as far as uh, anxious and avoidant, and maybe this is too simple. Um, I'm actually the flip of you, so I'm the anxious, and, and uh, my girlfriend Vanessa is an avoidant. Um, all you have to do, and I'm, not, I'm, say, I'm saying this like it's easy and it's not, yeah, is yeah. <laughs> if, if you're avoidant, um, do the opposite, meaning instead of running, instead of hiding, instead of not expressing yourself, instead of um, what you are used to, see if you can be more... Uh, um, the opposite. So see if you can run towards, see if you can express your feelings, see if you can express your needs across the board in all areas, including the bedroom. See if you can um, not take care of people. See if, you know, all of those things. And then if you're an ancient, uh, anxious, then see if you can actually um, not need someone to say they love you every second. See if you can, <laughs> you know, create distance. See if you can, you know, um, 
draw healthy boundaries. See if you cannot attach uh, someone's um, whatever someone is doing or not doing as uh, them loving or not loving you, and, and all of that stuff. And then you know, ultimately, the goal would be for both people to uh, swim toward being secure. Um, but yes, to answer this question, I, I think that uh, anything could work. It's just a matter of going back to what you said: two people. Uh, doing their own work and not uh, assuming, pointing fingers and hoping the other person does only their work. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think part of it, you said you said a real gem in there because what we're reacting to are those meanings. So sometimes even knowing that your partner is a different attachment style can help you offer yourself a reframe, right? So when I don't get that response text and if I know my partner withdraws when something heated comes up, instead of saying they don't love me, right? I could say, okay, this is them coping in the way that they cope. It doesn't, you know, make the sting maybe go away, but I think knowledge can be incredibly valuable when you're, because what we're reacting to, like I said, is those meanings is, oh, what that silence means or what, whatever it is means. That's what's causing the hurt. So if I can give myself another opportunity or another meaning, right, that's maybe not as emotionally damaging. And the more we know about ourselves and our partners, the more able some of us are able to do that. So I can grant a little more flexibility if I understand what's happening. If I don't, my mind's going to tell me the thing I feared is what's happening when that's surely not the case. Right. Um, I, I, and I, and I, I got to emphasize what you're saying is so important. Um, understanding your partner, um, and it doesn't matter if we're talking about love language or, or this, um, that in itself is huge because now there's room for compassion. Now there's um, you know a, a room for you to, to respond instead of react. I, I think understanding your partner three-dimensionally uh, is, is actually kind of the soil or the beginning of everything. Yeah. All right, next question. Um, is monogamy a childhood fantasy? What do you think about that? I think there's a lot of talk these days about uh, probably because of swipe culture and frustrations of dating. Um, there's a lot of conversations about different um, models like uh, polygamy and open relationships and all of that. So what do you think about monogamy being on trial these days? That's that's very interesting. I love, whoever asked that question, that's a good one. So I, I want to answer – I guess I want to answer two sh this in two kind of ways or two. So I talk often about – love. So I know I'm not answering the monogamy piece, but a lot of the fantasies that we have around love and relationships do begin early on in childhood. Right. And I think that's then becomes what we're seeking or what we think. I think some of it, you'll hear me often talk, John, about society and this disnification of love and these concepts that are being internalized that this is what love or relationships are. Right. I also, so, so whether or not monogamy is getting kind of stirred up or depending on what messaging one was given about this concept of monogamy, you know, in our younger years, I do believe that there's messages or I know there's messages about relationships and, and how they function that we do carry into our adulthood, even if our adult self doesn't agree with that anymore or doesn't believe that's not our truth and that we can be really still impacted by those age old beliefs. If we want to answer this on an evolutionary level, um, there's a book that's actually really amazing, you know, and it does talk about the concept of um, open or kind of polygamous relationships. It's called Sex at Dawn, and it was actually two sociologists that I believe were married and were, I believe, opening their relationship and talking about it from a very social, sociological perspective that was really fascinating, and it did bring up questions about 
needs and, and is, is monogamy, is there, is there one person to meet all of our needs? So again, I know I'm not answering it directly. So the question being, you know, whether or not it's monogamy or polygamy or wherever we stand on that spectrum, you know, that's, I think the question we're asking is, are there different types of relationships that be, can be sustainable over time? And I think the bottom answer that I want to give is this is so individual, you know, what relationship makes sense for you in your life might be drastically different than the relationship that makes sense for your neighbor or your family member or your friend or whomever it is. So I think it's about asking yourself those questions in terms of what does relationship mean to me? How do I feel most fulfilled? Am I making sure that I'm meeting my own needs first and foremost? Because I think that's an off track that a lot of us get where we're looking to everyone else to meet our needs. So then understandably, yeah, maybe we do need four people to meet different needs, but if we heal and begin to meet our own needs, maybe we shift then the way we show up in all relationships. Yes. And here's the thing. It's not a constant, you know, like majors in college, it could change as you change. Um, and I think as the world changes and these conversations keep happening. So um, I think, yeah, it, it's about asking yourself uh, um, where you're at and, and maybe it's about exploring. I don't know, but it, it's going to come down to you um, because Nicole or I can't give you your answer. Nicole, thank you so much for spending an hour with me. I'm sorry, Dr. Nicole, thank you so much for spending an hour with me. Uh, but more importantly, uh, thank you for everything that you do and for using your platform to um, be a conduit and a catalyst and uh, to, to send that ripple and make that dent in the world. Um, I think what you're doing is amazing. I think your intentions are, are great. And uh, yeah, that's a, there's a lot of people um, getting a lot from you. So thank you for that. Of course, John, and I could reflect the same right back at you. I am so in incredibly grateful to every human who's been interested in having a conversation with me. I love these topics. I can talk all the time, but being able to you know, continue to be exposed to different corners of the world and different audiences around the world, and I want to reflect right back at you, you showing up as authentically as you have been for as long as you have been has helped my entry into this space incredibly. So I thank you all the same. And this has been, it's, it's been great. It's so nice when I finally, when I've been following people and their work for so long and I actually get to have a, an in-person chat in real time. So I love, I love this. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And, uh, it's, you know, I think it's one of the, the, the great things about the internet is it connects us, uh, like-minded people. And then I also love, um, talking to them like in real life like we're doing now I think it makes makes the whole circle complete and real yeah thank you so much okay be well have a good one you too bye